I even turned it on today. Look at me go. Starting well. So over the past four weeks, we've been working through our way through the entire Bible. We're doing the entire Bible in seven weeks. So it sounds a little bit like biting off more than we can chew, but the series does a really incredible job of kind of doing a flyover of the Bible so that we can all have a little bit of knowledge of God's redemptive story. So anytime someone has heard this as our sermon series so far, they have been like, oh, seven weeks, the whole Bible. And I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to do it. And this is why I think we should, because one, our culture is becoming biblically illiterate. As new generations are coming, they know less and less about the Bible. Two, I believe in all of you. Smart, good-looking people. You guys know what's up. And three, I know from school that you can read a book really quickly when you go through the Coles notes. Uh, no, no, Mr. Brisbane is here. Uh, I read every book in high school fully. Never Coles noted anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> why rush through the Bible in seven weeks? Sigamont isn't going anywhere. We could take our time and go through the Bible slowly and a little more thoroughly. But we have given you so much leftover time that let's think of things we could do instead. We could exercise, use this time to hit the gym, catch up on some Netflix binging. The office will not be on there forever, so I'm making good use of the time I have left. Learn a new hobby or skill. I'm an adult now. I should get one of those. Uh, and one thing on almost every list that you can Google is take some time and read. So we are moving through the Bible quickly, but we also think that you guys should be working through it yourselves and that you guys, as we go through these books, spend your weeks reading and go a little bit deeper in your own time. So we want you to know the Bible, and here's why. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. More than 5 billion copies have been sold to date, and another 100 million are sold every year. The most translated book of all time, it's in nearly 2,500 languages. It's the most influential book of all time as well, not just in terms of culture or civilization, but in terms of people's individual lives. The Bible is made up of 66 books, written by more than 40 authors over a span of several hundred years. Over the last four weeks, we've been through 39 books, which make up the Old Testament, and today we're starting the New Testament. So it's pretty much divided into two halves, and really you can think of it as the part before Jesus and the part after Jesus. We just finished the before Jesus part, and today we're going to start the after Jesus part, the 27 books of the New Testament, beginning with the four that contain his life and teaching. The four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, known as the Gospels. Jesus was born in a small, obscure village as a child of a peasant woman. He didn't go to high school or college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. And he was only 33 years old when the people he spent his time healing chose to sentence him to death. He was nailed to a wooden cross between two criminals. While he was dying, executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had. And after he died, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of an acquaintance. Yet today, he is arguably the central figure of the entire human race. He even marks our concept of time. So we are in AD, Latin for Anna Domini, the year of our Lord. Anything before that is BC, before Christ. But do we know who he is really? From his birth to his temptation, message to mission, miracles to death, we probably don't know as much as we think we know. And what we think we know is often colored by tradition and custom, conventional wisdom and political correctness, things that aren't even in the record. For example, the idea that Jesus was white. So, while there is not a single historical reference to the physical appearance of Jesus, and nothing in the Bible that describes his looks, we do know that he was a Mediterranean Jew, and his skin would have been the olive darkness to it that you find in that region to this day. It also means that he didn't speak English, not even King James English. He would have been schooled in Hebrew and probably learned Greek as well, as that was the common language of business and commerce. 
And being a Mediterranean Jew also means he probably wasn't that tall, probably well under six feet. And not only wasn't he tall, but according to the ancient prophecies surrounding the coming of the Messiah, the Christians believe applies to Jesus, he wasn't physically impressive at all. In fact, which I think is a little harsh, the prophet Isaiah writes, he had no beauty or majesty that should attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It's a little honest in my opinion, but hey. So the idea that Jesus was tall, dark, and handsome is only right on the dark part. So, there are some misconceptions, obviously, floating around about Jesus, and some are based on tradition and some are just based on ignorance, but we do have four independent eyewitness accounts recorded in the Bible to clear things up, beginning with what we mean when we talk about these biographies being Gospels. Well, the word Gospel itself is built off the old Anglo-Saxon word Godspell, which just means good news, and that's what lies at the heart of the person and the work of Jesus, becoming the telling, the embodiment of the good news of God for human beings. And at the heart of that good news is that through Jesus, we can experience the forgiveness of sins and enter into an authentic, personal, life-changing relationship with the living God. Therefore, these gospels or accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, named after the four people who wrote them. So rather, uh, rather classic family names there. But I personally would like to see someone name their kid Nebuchadnezzar if we're doing biblical names, I'd love to see a kid in kindergarten try to spell that out on his little name tag. That's mean, don't do that. So, who were these guys? So Matthew was one of the original followers or disciples of Jesus, and later was appointed an apostle. That was a very special designation made by Jesus himself that set Matthew apart for the ministry of teaching and leadership directly sanctioned by Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector before becoming a follower of Jesus, which means he had a pretty sketchy background, and more than likely, he was a moral mess. But that was the, just the norm for tax collectors in that day. But when Jesus came in, he rocked his world and changed everything. Mark was a follower of Jesus who was a protege of two other men in the Bible, Barnabas and Paul, and then later the Apostle Peter. He was the youngest of the four writers, and it is widely held that Mark's gospel is essentially Peter's, as Peter would have been his primary source. Luke was a physician by training and a gifted historian. He was a close friend of the Apostle Paul and is the only one of the four writers who wasn't Jewish. Luke was one of the first Gentile converts. John, like Matthew, was an apostle. John had a brother named James who was also a follower of Christ. They were fishermen by trade, blue collar, work with their hands, rough around the edges. John is known as the disciple Jesus loved because of their close friendship and the fact that he was probably Jesus' cousin. So we're not sure, but there are some indications that his mother was the sister of Mary. If so, they would have known each other their whole lives. So there are four separate accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus in the Bible. But why are there four of the same story? Well, the first reason is because the importance and centrality of the life and work of Christ. If anyone deserves four eyewitness accounts, it would be Jesus. And the second reason is because the life of Christ was so rich, so diverse, and so multifaceted that it called for four approaches by four different writers. Think of it as you would four portraits painted by four different artists. Rather than just one picture, we have four pictures to get the fullest reflection of his life. Finally, there are four for validation. Rather than just taking Matthew's word for what happened and what Jesus did, we have four independent biographical accounts. So let's look at what we find in these four accounts. None of the four accounts were particularly interested in recording precise series of events, but here's a summary of what all four said. All four Gospels tell the story of a Jewish man named Jesus who came from the ancestral line of the great King David. He was miraculously conceived by a virgin named Mary through the Holy Spirit, 
born in Bethlehem, followed by a short term in Egypt, and then raised in a city called Nazareth. Jesus spent his first 30 years in relative obscurity with every indication of Joseph, the husband of Mary, dying while Jesus was young, which explains why Jesus would have had to stay to care for Mary until he was 30 and his other brothers could take over and care for her as a widow. He had a cousin named John, known as John the Baptist, not the same John who wrote the gospel, but John the Baptist was a forerunner, a prophet, a prophet proclaiming that the Messiah was coming and that all should get ready. Jesus went to John to be baptized, and when he did, John said, this is who I've been prophesying about. This is the Messiah. He has come. Jesus was baptized by John, and then he went out into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting, testing, and temptation from Satan and preparation for public ministry. So I heard that some Bible colleges were looking to take up this method of training and just send their students into the wilderness, but uh, The Revenant kind of has the same storyline, and there were copyright issues, so they just didn't. So Jesus began his ministry in the city of Galilee, calling others to follow him and setting apart 12 of those followers for intense and intimate mentoring. In essence, saying to those 12, I want you to come and do life with me. I want to pour into you for three years so that at the end of the run, I can turn things over to you. For three years, they did just that. Most of these would later become the apostles upon who the church Jesus came to establish would be built. Jesus taught many things that are recorded in these four biographies, including his famous Sermon on the Mount. He also taught informally through parables and stories. His primary message was that the kingdom of God had arrived and that people should turn from their sins and put their trust in God. He made it very clear that he was the Messiah, God himself in human form, who came to earth to show the way. If you were with us when we kicked the series off, you'll remember that we discussed how God has a very unique nature. God is triune, so three persons who are one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but three persons who make up one God. This is why later on in the Bible you find Jesus referring to God the Father, but then also referring to himself as God, God the Son. Jesus was God himself in human form, the second person of the Trinity. So the four Gospels go on and keep telling us about how Jesus kept telling his followers that he would, in the end, lay down his life for the sins of the world, and that whoever would believe in him and accept his death on their behalf for forgiveness of sins would receive eternal life. He had many memorable encounters with individuals, including a tax collector named Zacchaeus and a religious leader named Nicodemus, more good kindergarten names, a rich young ruler, and then a large and colorful assortment of prostitutes, adulterers, thieves, and murderers. Throughout his three-year period of public ministry, he also performed many miracles, including changing water to wine, walking on water, calming storms, healing the sick and blind, and even raising the dead. His fame continued to grow, building to the time he came to Jerusalem, the holy city and the place of the temple. He entered on a donkey as the people sang Hosanna, which was an expression of praise, but soon those shouts changed to crucify him. After a last supper with his disciples and a night in prayer, he was arrested by the Jewish authorities, beaten before being turned over to the Roman authorities, tied up and crucified. All because they perceived him to be a massive threat to the established order. On the third day, he rose from the dead, Presenting himself to his followers on numerous occasions over a 40-day period, he then returned to heaven, but not before promising that he would come a second time before the end of time. Now, there's obviously much, much more than that, but that's the essential flow of the story of Jesus' life presented by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they do it with remarkable unity and remarkable consistency. They come at it from four different angles, like you would expect four separate eyewitness accounts to do, giving the record of the life of Jesus in great depth and color, but they're completely unified on the record itself. So let's jump to what makes each of these stories unique. 
While all four tell the same story, there are some key differences in what parts of the story they tell, how it was written, and who it was written for. So let's start with beginning with Matthew. Matthew is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and therefore an eyewitness. He records more of Jesus' teaching than any of the other writers. For example, Matthew records the entire Sermon on the Mount. Matthew was not simply written by a Jew, but was written for the Jews. His goal was to demonstrate that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That's why there's such a lengthy genealogy at the very beginning. Matthew wanted to demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus was of the line of David, which was the only way they would ever even begin to consider whether he was Messiah material. And why he starts with the genealogy with Abraham, the founder of the Jewish race. Throughout the Gospel, Matthew is wanting to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, showing how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies for what this person was to have. So what was included and what was not was done with that editorial concern in mind. This is also one of the reasons why it's the most popular of the four Gospels during the first centuries of the early church. Mark's Gospel is the shortest of the four, only 16 chapters in length. He was a young guy, and it reads like it was written by someone young. It's fast-paced, energetic, electric, almost like it would be the action for a comic book. It begins on a run and ends with a screeching halt. In fact, it ends so abruptly that many people think that the end was destroyed or lost because of how, like, oof, it ends. Reading Mark is like whizzing through the life of Jesus at 60 miles per hour and hitting only the action scenes. There's nothing about the virgin birth. There's nothing about the visit of the wise men. There's nothing about Jesus as a boy in the temple. And there's no Sermon on the Mount. So it's pretty much just the action scenes. It's like the expendables if it was a gospel. So it shouldn't surprise you that Mark records more miracles than any other gospel. Even the one and only miracle that is recorded in all four gospels. So if you're into trivia, that's the feeding of the 5,000. But Mark notes that Jesus pulled that one off at least twice. Mark's gospel is the only one that records that was not just one, but two feeding of the multitudes. The first, feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. But he also did it a second time with 4,000 people, seven loaves, and a couple fish. He wasn't trying to write a biography. He was really just trying to write a gospel. Good news. In fact, of the 12 times the word gospel is used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eight of them are in Mark. So as mentioned, Mark was... Peter's spiritual son in the faith. So when you're reading Mark's gospel, you're really essentially reading Peter's account, an eyewitness account written down and edited by Mark. So that's not all. The persecutions of the Christians between 64 AD and 67 AD was horrific, and Mark probably wrote down Peter's reflections during that time. So because of that, the gospel of Mark has much in it about suffering and discipleship, but also awe. Mark records how stunned people were at what Jesus said and did. In fact, one of the most commonly word common words used in Mark's gospel is amazed. So now on to Luke. Luke was a doctor and a co-worker with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writes much of the New Testament. Because some false stories about Jesus were circulating, Luke decided to interview local eyewitnesses and people who had followed Jesus closely. Luke collated all the interviews into a single account, recording details that are not mentioned anywhere else. Luke's gospel is the most thorough, the most academic, and the most historical. The purpose was not simply history, of course, but to strengthen the faith of believers so that they could have a written record of Jesus' life and teaching and have confidence in what was written. So there's a sense in Luke that he's also writing for unbelievers and skeptics and the Gentiles who, like him, did not have a Jewish background. In fact, this is how he begins. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. 
So we don't really know who this guy was, but more than likely he was the patron who supported this research project and the writing of the gospel. This is also why we get the most details surrounding the birth of Jesus in Luke. Most of the famous parts of the Christmas story come from Luke. In Luke, you see that there's a real focus on telling the parts of Jesus' life and teaching that related to his real quest to reach out to the lost and the outcast. Luke reveals, perhaps more than any other of the biographers, Jesus being absolutely driven on a mission to reach those far from God. And then there's John. John is the most unique among the four, so much so that in graduate schools and seminaries that study this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are grouped together and are called the Synoptic Gospels, but then John is in its own category. The reason the term subnoctic is used for the first three is because subnoctic means from a similar viewpoint or is seen in a similar way. They tell many of the same stories, they often are in the same order, and they have a pretty similar wording and vocabulary. For example, 91% of what you can find in Mark's gospel is also found in Matthew's. So there's obviously some overlap there, which makes sense because they would have been drawing this all upon similar experiences, the same oral tradition, and the same written records. Even they're at these events together, so they have the same eyewitness accounts. But John is different. Not that he wasn't an eyewitness too, because he was. He just tells the stories that they didn't tell. He gets into conversations that they didn't record, and he edits things differently. Leaves out some stuff they put in, and puts in some stuff that they left out. So you have the synoptics to tell of his miracles and parables, and kind of the large-scale teaching. And John focuses on deeper discussions, including intimate conversations. You might even say that the synoptics are Jesus in action, and John is Jesus in conversation. One of the reasons for this is that John lived to be older than any of the other writers and wrote his last. So it was likely that he was familiar with what they had written and wanted to supplement theirs with additional teachings and miracles by Jesus. Also, if you recall, John was the one Jesus loved. He was the most close with Jesus and with him for some of his most intimate moments. John also wrote from a deeply theological and philosophical point of view. Whereas Matthew began with a genealogy, John begins in a very different way. Let me show you what I mean. Here's how Matthew starts. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes on. Whereas he goes through the whole thing from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, all the way down to Mary and Joseph. Again, laying a foundation for his Jewish audience. We read earlier how Luke starts off equally straightforward, but then there's John, and here's how he starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John gets a little deep right off the start, doesn't he? He was actually tipping his hat to Greek thinking, culture, and philosophy. Greeks felt that the originating force behind the universe was the logos, the word. John begins by saying, yes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Not only that, this Word became flesh in the person of Jesus. But while John tips his hat in the opening to some Greek ideas, his real intent is simple, and he even tells us what it is. Let me read it. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wanted to communicate the person of Jesus, that here was God himself in human form, come to call us, the world, back to himself. In fact, the word believe is used 98 times in John. John is absolutely focused, and again, he's not writing the classic biography, that's the closest one is Luke's, but he's writing an evangelistic narrative. 
He wants to present Jesus as raw and unfiltered as possible so that anyone who reads this biography will have to deal with the weight of Jesus' life and teaching. John wanted to paint you into a corner where you had to decide on this Jesus guy. Let me give you a taste of that through a pivotal interaction John recorded that Jesus had with a group of religious leaders. The Jews said to Jesus, aren't we, saying, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I tell you the truth. If a man keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that if a man keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. So we got to unpack that one. Who did Jesus say he was? He said, I am. Now that's either very bad grammar or he was saying something wildly significant. The background of this is found in one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God himself was speaking to Moses, telling him to go to the highest authority and power in the land and demand the release of the slaves. Moses understandably wanted to have a little bit of credibility, so he asked God to give him his name, the very name of God, so that he could go to the people and say exactly who had sent him. Here's the answer God gave to Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say. I am has sent me to you. That phrase, I am, is considered the most holy word in existence because it is the very name of God. It was considered to be so holy that the Jews would not even write it completely out. They would only write the four consonants, Y, H, W, H. The closest we can make out in light of that, missing vowels, is that it's pronounced Yahweh. They used to think that it was pronounced Jehovah, but we now know that it's pronounced Yahweh. God said, my name is Yahweh, I am. Now look back at what Jesus said when asked about his identity. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus claimed to be the very name of God himself. He said, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you. I'm God. And people listening understood him completely. They picked up stones to stone him because this was nothing less than blasphemy. Here, a mere man was claiming to be God himself. Throughout his life, he made that claim repeatedly, and John was relentless in recording it. Here's a taste. I am the Son of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John wanted there to be no doubt that in Jesus, we have a person who walked the earth and claimed to be God. It's as if John wanted to force the issue where you can stand with Jesus because claiming to be God in human form only leaves you with four options. First, you can conclude that Jesus was a stark, raving lunatic. Maybe he did think he was God, but he would have been severely sick psychologically, even though there's nothing in the historical record of Jesus that exhibits a single sign of any of the classical manifestations of mental illness. The second choice would be to say that he's simply a liar. The problem with that is that you are saying that the man whose teaching that has set the standard for integrity and honesty throughout the civilized world was a habitual, premeditated, pathological liar. Even more important to remember is that Jesus was arrested, mocked, beaten, and tortured prior to his execution for this claim. But on the front end, he was offered a full pardon by the Roman governor, Pilate, if he would simply deny his claim to be God. Think about it. If a con man could stop a nail being driven through the flesh of his hand just by fessing up, he would. 
People who are playing a game for personal gain change the game when it no longer pays off. They start telling the truth whenever it serves them better than a lie. But Jesus never recanted. He endured it all. The third option is to say that Jesus was just a good man, maybe even a prophet from God, but that's all. And this is where a lot of people are. Not many people want to say that Jesus was a liar or a lunatic, but they don't want to say he was God either. So they land on him just being a good man, maybe even holy, but that's all. There's a problem with that one too, and C.S. Lewis put it really well. Here's what he wrote. I'm here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So as C.S. Lewis so eloquently said, the fourth option is to fall at his feet and call him Lord. This gospel doesn't leave room for us to remain on the fence. This gospel leaves us in a place where we have to choose who we believe this man, Jesus, is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all chose to believe that he was the I Am. And as we close today, this is something that you're going to have to choose for yourself. So I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes now as we finish with a prayer. After hearing about the life and personhood of who Jesus was, I want to give you all the opportunity to choose to believe that he is the I Am and to fall at his feet and call him Lord. If this is something for you today and you haven't expressed this in your own life, today is a great day to start. If you choose to believe that he says, or that he is who he says he is, and that he truly was the I am, then I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, and we're going to pray with you. I'm going to give a little bit of time for this, just for those who would like to. So if that's something that you believe today, now is your time to raise your hand. As I pray... Express in your own words to God that you are choosing to believe in who he was and what he did for you. Take this time to thank him for everything he has done and everything that he does continually in our lives. We're going to close in prayer now. God, we thank you that you are such a holy God and that you came to this earth as a person to live and to die so that we could have eternal life in you, God. We are grateful that you are who you say you are and that you are the I am, God. And we choose to believe that you are exactly who you say you are. God, we spend our time here today who we come to get to know you more because we know that your word is so holy. And as we continue working through this series, God, I pray that you just reveal yourself more and more. We are so grateful for everything you've done and for the new life we receive in you continuously, God. You are so holy and so gracious, and we love you. Amen. Check, check. Thank you. Sorry. All right. Thank you for that message. Um, I just have a couple announcements to end the morning. Um, we have water baptism coming up. So if you're a Christian and you have not been baptized, you know, this is the next step. This is one way, or this is the way that we proclaim to um, our church, to your community, that you are following Christ. You know, it represents us 
going underwater, coming back is like we die with Christ and then we're risen with new life. So um, you can sign up for that at eaglemont.info. Uh, that's November 10th. And then there's a class in Pastor Marlowe's office on November 3rd at 9 a.m. So be sure to uh, to sign up. Um, last, Our last prayer encounter was awesome. Uh, someone who was there for the first time just said like, man, that was good for my heart. And it really is. It's really encouraging to be a part of prayer, to join together and just faithfully trust God and um, put him first in our lives. So I encourage you to come to our next prayer encounter. It'll be a little different. Uh, we're calling it uh, the night of prayer and vision where it's um, some of it's prayer and then the rest is kind of roundtable discussion about the mission and the vision of our church and um, what that looks like. So I just encourage you to uh, to come to that. And you can find more information at eaglemont.info.